Today's episode of The Travel Diaries is supported by Chitalia. Chitalia has been helping their customers discover the very best of Italy for over 90 years. Their experience and expertise together with attention to detail and personal touch really does make them the leading Italian holiday specialists. Their team of experts live and breathe all things Italy and have an extensive knowledge of the country to help pair you with your perfect holiday and let you experience Italy like a Chitalian. Whether you want a luxurious private villa for your family or a group of friends or a boutique city hotel on a piazza in Florence away from the main tourist areas the team can find something perfect for you they can recommend a romantic hotel built into a cave in Matera or a family-owned Tuscan farmhouse nestled among centuries-old olive groves these are the people to speak to just visit chitalia.com forward slash the travel diaries and find out more Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast season four. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in. And don't forget, there's all of seasons one, two, and three to catch up on too. You don't want to miss Michael Palin getting under the skin of North Korea and how Serrano Fiennes coped when he had a heart attack halfway up Mount Everest. Just hit subscribe on your podcast app of choice and take a look through the feed. I can assure you it's wanderlust guaranteed, especially right now. Oh, I can't believe I'm back for another season in lockdown here in the UK. We're under yet another national lockdown at the moment. So I'm recording all of my episodes remotely like I did last season. But the silver lining, I suppose, is that these conversations have really helped me to be transported from my home to somewhere far away and be distracted from everything that's happening in the news. And most importantly, really, it's ignited my excitement for traveling again, hopefully in the next few months, I hope. And I just I really hope it does the same for you. It's it's hard to escape any mention of COVID in this coming season, given the impact it's had on people's travels. But Unlike last season when it was really a new thing and we chatted about it on most episodes a bit, I really want for this season to be a true place where you can come to escape from all that and, you know, truly unwind and have your mind taken off things. And I can't wait to share all the guests that I've got lined up. It's going to be a great season, especially today's guest. He's someone I've wanted to interview for the podcast from the very beginning. He is the award-winning author, writer and documentary maker, John Ronson. So John has had so many career highlights, but to name a few, to give you a picture, he is the author of many best-selling books, including So You've Been Publicly Shamed, Them, Adventures with Extremists, The Men Who Stare at Goats, which was adapted to become a movie starring George Clooney, and The Psychopath Test, which is the first book of John's that I read, and I was hooked on his work ever since. He's an acclaimed screenwriter, most recently co-writing Oakja with Bong Joon Ho. Now Bong Joon Ho you might remember is the South Korean director of Parasite which won the best picture at the Oscars last year so that's 
pretty cool. And if you're not already familiar with John's work, I'd also suggest checking out one of his recent podcast series, which have been huge hits around the world. The Butterfly Effect and The Last Days of August both look at the effects of the porn industry. They're both fascinating, disturbing and addictive to listen to. And I'm sure once you listen to John today, you'll you'll understand why his voice and his charm is also addictive to listen to as well. John's now based in the US. He's been there for several years. And so we spoke online as per usual these days. And I hope you really enjoy our conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, here's John. John Ronson, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Uh, well, I'm under the weather, um, but it's not COVID, so no one will care. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. I saw that it is snowing out in New York, where you yeah. are. Mm-hmm. We got a beautiful, I mean, it's beautiful. We got about two feet of snow a couple of days ago. It's actually snowing again right now, but but light. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's lovely. It's it's a little too deep for it to be like ultimate snow fun because the dogs can't really run around in it because it's a little bit too deep. But um, but it is. It's just beautiful. The seasons out there in you're in upstate New York, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does the novelty ever wear off with that? No, I feel it's funny. Like it wasn't my idea for us to move upstate. It was my wife's idea, and and I just like went along with it without really thinking very much about it. But but now now that we're here, I just love it. I love you know the little country lanes that I go jogging down every morning, and all the strange animals that they have here. Um, the likes of which would just terrified un- unaccustomed Brits like me like, oh, really? like raccoons yeah they have like human hands and <laughs> <laughs> and um and then things run past you in the dark uh I, I think groundhogs but I'm not sure and there's deer everywhere um it's kind of amazing Oh, sounds great I actually want to ask you a lot more about upstate New York further on in your travel diaries sure We're going to go through the seven chapters of the travel diaries of your life. And the first is your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be? Uh, I think my earliest sort of well-formed one, like I have ill-formed memories, like one time being by a swimming pool that my father accidentally burnt my hand with his cigar and I jumped (laughs) into the pool to... Yeah, but um, but that's just a fragmented memory as opposed to like a full memory. I think my first full travel memory that I really that was really special was from around the age of ten. We used to go um, every summer to Marlborough College summer school. So Marlborough College is you know it's like a sort of private fancy private school, boarding school, boarding school in Wiltshire. But every summer, um, they would have a summer school. And it was probably the closest to to a kind of American summer camp experience, you know, that would have been possible for someone like me to to have. Um, And so it was amazing, just like kids, you know, running around. We'd we'd walk to Avebury and 
touched the standing stones at Avebury. I remember freaking out because somebody told me that um, that if you touch the stones, this kind of massive amount of psychic electric energy would course through you and you'd be like throw but that turned out to just be in a tv show not in real life (laughs) but there was that tv show children of the stones where that happened but i can tell you that that doesn't happen in real life with those stones i agree yeah so that's that's my first that's my first like holiday memory of going to marlborough every, every year and you grew up in Wales? Yeah, Cardiff. So it was hardly a globe trot. You could practically walk. <laughs> it was like um, from Cardiff to Marlborough, it's probably only about, I don't know, 50 miles or 100 miles or something. And are they happy memories in Cardiff? No, Cardiff, my memories were terrible. But, but really? my leaving Cardiff memories are, are all happy. <laughs> also I go to Jewish summer camp um from about the age of 14 there was a couple of competing Jewish organizations um there was the Jewish lads brigade which was basically militaristic Zionism so that wasn't for me um but uh but then there was um uh well you're Jewish so you'll know this stuff right well my dad's Jewish so um my mum isn't so I didn't grow up with really any of this so you'll have to explain it to me and the listeners in a bit more detail okay well there's the orthodox Jews and they all they all went to the Jewish lads brigade Mm -hmm. um I went once but it was clearly preparing me for joining the Israeli army, which was something I had no interest in. So right. I only went once to, to JLB. But then I switched and I discovered that there was a there was a reform Jewish youth group called RSY, Reform Synagogue Youth. And that was completely the opposite. That was basically just like learning how to smoke cigarettes and getting off with girls and listening to Simon and Garfunkel. Sounds ideal. Yeah. So the summer camp was called Shemesh, which I think is Hebrew for sun, but I could be wrong about that. And then the winter camp was called Geshem. So were you quite religious growing up? No, 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 not at all. Um, My my parents, we, we went to Orthodox synagogue, but that was only because it was like the closest synagogue, like to, to where we lived. There was nothing religious about us. I mean, my, my father would, um, I guess, once every couple of weeks, we'd have to like do some sort of perfunctory prayer before Friday night dinner. But that, that was as far as it went. But but going to RS, going to the Reform Synagogue Youth Summer Camps was just magical teenage fun. So chapter two then is the first place that you fell in love with. Oh, that would be Edinburgh. Ah. Yeah, when I was about 16, I started going to the Edinburgh Festival, just just getting um, the train by myself mm-hmm. um, and just hanging out, watching the buskers and going to shows and stuff. And that was the first time I really thought, okay, this is, this is, what, I, this is what I want to do with my life, somehow be involved in this kind of thing. I just, I, I became kind of a bit of a silent hanger on, kind of a groupie. I'd go back and see my favourite acts over and over again. Mm-hmm. There was these amazing buskers, this group called the Brighton Bottle Orchestra, who would just play uh, tunes with bottles. Oh. Um, 
And uh, anyway, this was all like Alice for me. This was like Alice in Wonderland. I'd go there and just just stare at them and just go back over and over and over again, and became friends with like some of the comedians. Became friends with, uh, I guess, Joe Brand and um, people like that. I remember Mark Thomas. I remember maybe after a couple of years of this, when I was about eighteen or nineteen, um, Mark Thomas, the comedian, came stomping up to me and said. Um, you know, I see you, uh, you just sit here watching us. When are you going to do something? When are you going to do something? Uh, and it was it was an admonishment, but, but a very positive admonishment, right? Yeah. What were you thinking of doing at that stage? I, I don't know. I didn't want to be a comedian. I didn't, mm. I didn't, like, I didn't feel that stand-up was my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean... I was gonna. I, when I ended up being in Frank Sidebottom's band a couple of years later, I remember the drummer manager Mike Doherty said to me that you're going to end, he said you're going to end up being some kind of writer, uh, and I remember thinking, oh gosh, I hope not, because um, <laughs> I associated writing with just being alone in a room. Yeah, I mean, it surely is, it couldn't be further from the truth with the kind of writing that you're doing. Well, well actually, to tell you the truth, it, it is true because if I go off and have an adventure. The adventure itself usually only lasts a few days or a week or something. Mm -hmm. But then making it work as a piece of writing will take me several months. Right. So actually, you know, even if even though my my writing sometimes looks like it's all on the road and it's adventure after adventure, in real life the adventures are pretty pretty short lived. Whereas the writing process is is really long. So I thought that I'd read all of your books when I was researching for today, but I found out that your very first book was actually about travel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's only a book in in the respect that it sort of looks looks like a book. It's book shaped. I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't say you know my first my first proper book then. Um, was nominated for for a first book award, and then one of the other shortlist fuckers—I don't know which one—basically told on me to the organisers and said, "Actually, he had another book out a few years earlier called Cut Class." So they phoned me up and said, "You know, is it true that you've had another book?" And I was like, "Well, you know, define book." So anyway, I was disqualified. Uh, Oh no way! Yeah, but why wasn't it a book? Well, I just didn't really know how to write. I was in my early twenties. What had happened was I'd made this TV show when when I was about twenty five called The Ronson Mission, Mm -hmm. and and it really wasn't very good. It was for the BBC. I, I wasn't I wasn't good enough at that point to to be on TV. Um, and I wasn't. I didn't enjoy it. I wasn't comfortable. I, I I didn't like. It's funny, you know. If you'd said to me as a kid, you, you'll get your own TV series when you're in your mid twenties to do whatever you want. I would have thought that's like a dream come true. But yeah. but the reality of it was was I just I I was I was very aware that that I didn't know what my voice was, and mm-hmm. so I was like flailing around a bit. Um, but on the back of that show, somebody offered me, somebody said, you know, that's like, like a Christmas book where you go around the world trying to stay in five-star hotels for, for no money. So that blag your way around the world. That's what the book was. And so how did that go? The best bit was I ended up in a, in a sort of mini war. I, I went to South Africa 
at the end of very tail end of apartheid and some members of the AWB who, who were the neo-Nazi group at the time um, in, invaded a little town called Baputitswana and, and, and so like a sort of mini war started and I was right there and so I found myself in. By the time I got back to the hotel, like the next day, it had been downgraded from a war to a skirmish, which I felt a bit disappointed by. So actually, an official skirmish. It was a skirmish. Yeah, they killed. They killed the AWB men. Wow. It was nuts. Like three white supremacists thinking they could over overturn the town. Yeah. Um, clearly, that wasn't going to work out for them. So you were there to explore luxury travel, but you ended up in the middle of a war slash skirmish. Yeah, yeah, because it was very close to Sun City, which is like the Disney world of South Africa. Um, So it happened right next to Sun City. Uh, So I was at Sun City and suddenly it turned out that, you know, there was like violence happening just with just just a few minutes away but again I was I was young like I, I really don't feel like I knew how to write till I was about 30 like any any writing I did before the age of 30 just mm. doesn't really count and, and <laughs> that includes that hmm. and where else did you go though for that trip yeah because it's quite interesting trying to discover the world's finest holiday I mean is there anywhere that you thought was just so like immensely overrated for example well I went on the QE2 uh-huh. um no, I was, you know, I came from like lower middle class Cardiff suburbs. So like it was all impressive to mm-hmm. me. I mean, I think, I think in, I think the QE2 was probably pretty shit. It was, it was falling apart and it was very 80s. Yeah. Um, you know, it was the decor was pretty bad. What was the route that you took? Uh, I mean, this is a long time ago and I haven't thought mm. about it in years, but, but yeah, I went, so I went on the QE2 to New York. So how long is that journey? About a week, maybe. It's a long time to see the Atlantic Ocean, isn't it? Yeah, you know, when we emigrated properly to America, we went on the Queen Mary because I've got dogs and I didn't want to subject them to the baggage hold. And so they've got like a dog deck on the Queen Mary. But but something, and that was like, that was like eight years ago. That's incredible. I love that. There's that one experience for them. Yeah, although I've got a, there's a dark side to this story. Oh, gosh. So our dogs had to be in um, cages. They were allowed out 10 hours a day just on this little deck. So all the dog owners were just sort of sitting there for like 10 hours a day. It became almost like a little cult. There was this this guy called uh, Jojo who was like in charge of like the dogs and us in the area. And one time, one time, nobody was allowed beyond the gate. People would sometimes come and stand on the other side of the gate to to pet the dogs. It became like a little bit of a petting zoo. Um, but nobody was allowed on the other side of the gate. And then one day we were all there playing with our dogs and we looked up and there was like a man um, on, the other, on the wrong side of the gate, on our side of the gate, where non-dog owners weren't supposed to be. And we all just like stared at him. And one of, somebody went, Jojo? I tried to, like, Jojo will come and make everything okay. Jojo will get rid of the the, the man. But anyway, the dark story is that on the last day, we heard Jojo told us that there was a um, another dog on the Queen Mary that we hadn't seen because this other dog had special permission to sleep in its owner's bed. 
Um, and this other dog was Pudsey, winner of Britain's Got Talent 2012. No uh, way. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. Pudsey. Yeah, but I I was outraged. And like I voted, don't you know, don't get me wrong, I voted for Pudsey on the show. I was a big Pudsey <laughs> yeah. fan. But, you know, but there we all were on our way to New York. And Pudsey was like sailing to New York like some fucking king. What um, a diva. Yeah, and we were all in the dog deck. And it just, I don't know, it was a bad start to our new life. Like we were below Pudsey in the hierarchy. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so moving on to chapter three, that is a place where you learnt the most about yourself. Where would that be? Edinburgh would be an answer. I, I, mm-hmm. I really sort of discovered sort of, I don't know, like I didn't know who I was when I was going up to Edinburgh and watching the buskers and going to the shows, but I knew this was somehow the world I wanted to be part of. Mm-hmm. Um so I'd say Edinburgh. Oh, I remember around when I was 18, 19, I went to college and I became the social secretary. And I started dating this girl called Samantha, who was the social secretary of Warwick University mm-hmm. or possibly Coventry Polytechnic. I can't remember. Anyway, we went on, we started dating. And the first thing we did when we started dating was go on holiday together to to Greece, to like Rhodes. And there mm-hmm. was a heat wave and I got sunstroke. And, oh. and yeah, and Samantha's hooked up with these bad, these like bad people. And they accidentally set fire to a church. And <laughs> um, yeah, on the beach. And I remember very clearly thinking that's, I guess this is an answer to your question. Like, this is somebody who I am not. I am not somebody who accidentally sets fire to churches in Greece. Um, <laughs> so you learn to apply sunscreen more often. And stay and away. And to break from, up with Samantha. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think I'd actually already broken up with Samantha by the time she set fire to the church. I think I realised that, uh, that this wasn't going to work out. So a breakup mid-holiday. Yeah. That's never easy. It was pretty easy on that holiday. We were we were pretty clearly ill-suited. Hmm. Um, yeah. So then did you end up exploring roads by yourself? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I sort of became friends with like other people. But most of the time I think I was in bed with sunstroke. It, it, there was a, it was like 120 degrees or something. There was like a terrible heat wave. Yeah, it was bad. Like, I felt I felt like, like I was going to die. Ugh. But my only real memories of of roads were Samantha setting fire to the church, and me immediately realizing that these kids were like out of control. Just left. I just walked away. Just walked along the beach. <laughs> <laughs> So, so we talked a little bit earlier that about how you're based in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered what made you decide to move to the US in the first place. Okay, so here's the story. We were living in in Highgate, um, and and the only reason we were really living in Highgate was because my son was going to school in nearby Golders Green, and um, and my wife, when we would have to, you know, the school run before we moved to Highgate, was like horrific, you know, constant traffic jams on Holloway Road. 
so uh, so that's why we moved to Highgate to be close to the school, and, it, and we felt very kind of cut off. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's but it's old. You know, it's very it's kind of it's it's for retirees really where we were living. And I don't know. I'd always gone to New York. Always felt it was really magical. I'd always have like great fun when I went to New York, and eventually I started making show stories for this American life and I got invited to give a TED talk and so suddenly I, I became like a little bit more successful in, in America mm-hmm. and so we thought oh you're like why not why not we, we we don't want to live in Highgate we could move to another part of London but why not you know just like Kennedy just like President Kennedy said about the moon landing sometimes you should do something because it's hard and I guess emigrating yeah. to New York was 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 hard and yeah and did you go straight to Manhattan or yeah people were saying to us oh live in Brooklyn that's where all the cool stuff is um mm. but we thought if we're going to move to New York we might as well move to Manhattan be among all the big skyscrapers not London can be such a bubble I didn't I didn't feel ready to just move to another bubble and my god Brooklyn's a bubble a bubble of people who all think that they rule culture um <laughs> like they yeah. decide how everybody you know i'm talking about things like slate and um all of these cool websites and i just didn't want to be part of that i wanted to be in like old new york yeah. so so we moved to the upper west side which is a kind of timeless part of new york so that suited us is manhattan still a place that you return to a lot though you're living upstate yeah i mean we're close by and I was there last week. So what are your favourite Manhattan haunts? Well, there's great clubs, great comedy clubs. The one thing that I really missed when I first moved to New York was the kind of room above bars, comedy shows that you'd have in London. Mm-hmm. Places like Camden, you know, where band, bands would play, like little holes where bands would play and comedians would play. I love that in London and I... It took me a while to find that in New York. And I, when I did find it, it was it, it was in Brooklyn, as you can imagine. So it'd be like long taxi journeys. But um, the Bell House in Brooklyn, Union Hall in Brooklyn. I started curating a show at Union Hall um, wow. in Park Slope in Brooklyn. Me and my friend Maeve Higgins, the comedian, would curate a monthly show there. So, yeah, Union Hall, the Bell House. Um, in terms of things like restaurants, I love the Oyster restaurant at Grand Central Station. That's a great dramatic place to go and have back to eat. Atmospheric before you head out to to the yeah. country. Yeah, and then there's Barney Greengrass, the um but then it got temporarily closed down for failing health. Um oh, no. yeah standards so that took the sheen off it a little bit. I have <laughs> been back since once since it reopened. So. With some trepidation? It's definitely some trepidation, <laughs> definitely. So are you kind of in the Catskills area now? Uh, I'm the other side of the river to the Catskills. Um, I can see the Catskills from our, from, from our upstairs rooms, from our upstairs bathroom. I can see the Catskills. But we're in the Hudson Valley, so we're, oh, lovely. Yeah, we're the other side of the Catskills, sort of halfway between uh, the town of Hudson and the town of Rhinebeck. I travelled around the Catskills um, and upstate, the rest of upstate New York and the Finger Lakes uh, a couple of mm. years ago, primarily to go leaf peeping. What's... Is that something you partake in? 
No, is, is, that, is that a form of voyeurism? <laughs> no, it, it's nowhere near <laughs> that exciting. <laughs> what is it? It's um, to observe the fall foliage or the autumn colours. Oh, yeah. Well, that's lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Hudson is is a really diverse town. Such a great art scene. Yeah, and quite a lot of the area up here is pretty Trumpy. Um and Hudson isn't. Hudson's, you know, a, just a really great mix of artists um, and a very diverse community. Mm-hmm. And I slightly fear that it's getting more and more gentrified and and it's just going to be... A couple of weeks ago, we were in Hudson and I saw the kind of cars that you'd see in like, the Hamptons, you know, like Ferraris and stuff. Yeah. And that was never what Hudson was like, you know, when we first started coming up here. And so I worry a bit about that. So for the listeners who don't know much about Hudson, how would you bring it to life? Kind of like just a beautiful, a little bit like, it's been years since I saw Northern Exposure, but, but you know, a northern town, it's very, um, very townhousey. So like, um, you know, you, it, there's parts of it that look like Brooklyn, a, a beautiful main street called Warren Street with um, lots of, you know, art galleries and interesting restaurants, but not fancy, although I feel that's going to change. And then at the bottom of Warren Street is the Hudson River. Uh, so Hudson is where Henry Hudson came, like when he and sort of set up home when he was naming the river after himself or, or yeah. the other things that he did when he was here. It's got a beautiful, just a really nice community, which I which I fear is ever so slightly under threat because because it's getting so gentrified. Have you been to the Finger Lakes? No. Um, I've been to like lakes in the Catskills. There's a beautiful lake called North-South Lake in, in right in the middle of the Catskills. But I don't know. And I've heard of the Finger Lakes, but I don't think I've ever been there. What, what, what are they like? Oh, you have to go. So I, I did that on the same trip where we were, we began in Manhattan and we drove up to the Catskills and then we went up from there about, it's about three and a half hours from Manhattan to get to the Finger Lakes. And they are, um, there are five main lakes, all finger shaped, hence their name. Um, and they are surrounded by some of the best wine country in the US outside of California. Oh, um, wow. extraordinary landscape tons of national parks and waterfalls and we stayed in a place that I can highly recommend I can I know that you'd love a little village called Aurora um, uh-huh. which is on the biggest of the lakes Lake Cayuga and it's one of those quintessential American you know uh, flags outside big white porches mm-hmm. um, absolutely gorgeous um fairly historic buildings and the property in the middle of it is called the Inns of Aurora and basically there are five different inns that that are spread throughout this little village of Aurora and they are very quaint and gorgeous and they give you little scones and and tea and it's charming all farm to table food um I sound like I work for them but I, I, I actually just wrote an article about how I'm tipping it as my like next big place for sure. oh, nice. well funnily enough I just delivered a massive piece of writing today that I've been working on and I was going to treat myself sometime around Christmas to a, to a drive somewhere so maybe that's like maybe that's where I'll go obviously oh yeah like. definitely well if you do go uh let me know because I'd love to hear what you think okay will do 
So moving on to chapter four, that is your all-time favourite destination. All-time favourite destination. Well, I suppose as a, as a country, it would be Italy. Throughout my son's childhood, uh, we'd, pretty much every holiday we had was in Italy or Sardinia. We'd go to the Forte village in Sardinia every year, and oh. um, which was very chiche. One time I was on, on the go it's it's like a kind of resort hotel. And one mm-hmm. time I was on the go-kart track racing somebody. Um, me and my son in one go-kart and somebody and their son in another go-kart. We both had our helmets on, so we didn't know. And I was like smashing into him and he was smashing into me. And, you know, and, and then at the end we took our helmets off and it was David Beckham. <laughs> no way. Yeah, and not only was it David Beckham, it was David Beckham just before the European Cup. So if I'd like, I could have like destroyed, <laughs> <laughs> like if I'd knocked him off his go-kart, I'd have destroyed the dreams of all Brits. Yeah. I, I mean, when you, when you were saying that you visited Sardinia, I didn't expect you to bring up go-karting as the first thing that you, you did there. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, this is because, you know, I mean, Joel was young. We wanted to play yeah. sex with the kids. And, and so we started going to the Forte Village. And then when he got a bit older, we started going to Forte de Mame in Italy. What part of Italy is that in? I can't remember. We started going to the Cinque Terre. But oh, lovely. Yeah, but Forte de Mami, I think, I guess it's Tuscany. Let me just check. Forte de Mami is a seaside town in Tuscany. Yeah, that's right. Tuscany. Oh, coastal Tuscany. That's yeah. that's an, a, a part that's less frequented, I would say. Yeah, it's pretty, again, it's quite shishi. I don't know why we ended up going to such a shishi place, but it's a bit like, it's a bit like sort of Beverly Hills, like lots of Italian, you know, fancy Italian families but you know the beach was beautiful and and we just loved Italy as a concept we'd go to um, Sorrento as well just Italy imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels 
even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers? just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. So chapter five then is your hidden gem, a place that you love that perhaps my listeners might not know about. I really love, I really love Highway One. Um, I don't know if this is a hidden gem though. I mean, it's certainly not a hidden gem in America. It might be more in Britain. It's basically the coastal road that, that takes you, um, well, we started in Napa Valley and ended up in Los Angeles. It's the mm-hmm. coastal road that goes down the Pacific, it's, it's called the Pacific Coast Highway. And yeah. it takes you through Big Sur, Monterey, Santa Barbara, where the Hearst Castle, you know, San Simeon, where William Randolph Hearst lived. Mm-hmm. There's beaches filled with... Um, sort of things that look like sea lions. Yeah. Uh, that would probably be my favourite place in the world as well as my hidden gem. I, really? Yeah, Highway 1. So on the as, you, as you're driving down, on the right you've got the Pacific Ocean and on the left you've got these mountains that look surprisingly like the Scottish Highlands. Such epic landscape. Yeah, Um like like people have said to me, we want to go on a road trip in America. Where would you recommend? And I, and I always say the Pacific Coast Highway. And what's your favourite stop? There's a beach. I, just before the pandemic hit, I was there actually on my own doing a bit of work, and I stopped to look at the uh, to look at the seals on this beach. If it's the same seals that I remember, um, is that just before Big Sur where they all kind of bask on that stretch? A lot of people drive past, yes, and, and it's and they're like ten deep, yeah, in, in a in a line, and and they they look kind of like they're dead, but they're not. They're just kind of sleeping there. Yeah, my my only hesitancy is you said just before, but it's just before if you're driving up the coast from. Oh yeah, sorry, I went the other way to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think we're. T- I'm pretty sure we're talking about the same place. Yeah, they're it's, amazing, it's, aren't they? I mean, amazing yeah. wildlife to get to interact with. Oh my God, it's incredible. And it hasn't been, you know, the Pacific Coast Highway is is one of the most beautiful stretches of landscape in the world. And yet it it hasn't been built up. I don't know if it hasn't been built up just because it's impossible, because there's like nowhere to build, because on, on one side it's mountains and on the other side it's cliffs. Um, and it's very narrow. Also, there's lots of landslides happen a lot. So maybe people don't want to build because of the landslides. Yes, because that the iconic Bixby Creek Bridge, of course, was out of action yeah. for a while because of the landslides, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I love that. And I love the destination too. I love Los Angeles. People people who live in LA look slightly askance at me when I tell them how much I love LA. <laughs> I think most people who live in LA kind of hate LA. But Really? Would you ever live there? Yes, I'd, I'd live there in, a, in, yeah. a, in an instant. I'd love to live there too. 
Yeah, I adore it. It's so magical. I, I actually would put LA as one of my most magical places in the world. You know, when I lived in England, when you fly to New York, it's like New York's great, but it's kind of like London. Like, mm-hmm. like, but when you fly to LA, it's like another planet. You know, the colours, the desert, the, the architecture. Um, yeah. I kind of love LA as a, as a holiday destination. I think when you live in LA and you're part of the film industry, it can be incredibly depressing um, mm. because you spend your life in development and you never get anything made. Yeah, yeah. And so you end up hiking Runyon Canyon like a sort of spectral figure. <laughs> and also there's a great, I think it was the, the actor Stephen Magan gave one of my favourite quotes about LA um, where he said, um, they kill you with encouragement. Because <laughs> what happens is you go in there, you go and see these producers and they just tell you you're the, you are the voice of your generation and you, and, you're, and you leave the meeting just thinking, my life has just changed. And like, nothing happens. <laughs> like, after that, I totally understand what he means when he says they kill you with encouragement. You know, they just they fill you with false hope. Oh, yeah, I could so imagine that. <laughs> so you've always been right on top of the zeitgeist, or sorry, ahead of the zeitgeist, I should say, in terms of the areas that you've covered in your writing, your podcasts. And 2015, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, was a book that really struck a chord with me, focusing on the impact of public shaming um, and the phenomenon, especially online on Twitter. So what really inspired that in the first place? Um, actually, it was I don't really put any of this in the book, but um, it's appropriate given that this is a podcast about travel. It was it was really the kind of loneliness I felt when I first moved to New York. Um, I, I I just felt displaced. You know, we moved kind of on a whim, and there was, and other than the fact that we didn't really love living in Highgate, which is you know neither here nor there, um, there was nothing else about London I didn't like. I, you know, I loved London. I had lots of friends, and you know, I knew where the, where the best shows were. And uh, I loved London, and then I moved to New York. And even though, as I said, you know, I was people were offering me work, you know, this American life and stuff like that. I didn't really know many people, and I and I'm I definitely am prone to isolating. It's a bad mm-hmm. habit. I have mm-hmm. proclivity to isolate, and I was I was isolating in New York, and I felt like I was like adrift and failing a little bit in New York. This was in the first year of us moving over, right? Uh, and uh, we've been there like eight years, eight or nine years now, um, and so I'd like go on Twitter, and I'd see the very beginning, like the very first people who were, whose lives were being destroyed by public shaming. Hmm. And, and by chance, quite a few of them lived in New York. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember thinking, oh, there's another person failing in New York. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, that was the motivation. It was like I found myself identifying with them more than I would otherwise have done. That's so it, interesting. Yeah, and... and and yeah, I never put any of that in, in the book, but, you know, I, I do think that's what motivated me to write the book. Hmm. The the lady who got on the plane is the one that always sticks in my mind. Yeah, that's the one that everybody remembers, the AIDS tweet woman, Justine Sacco. Uh, she was in New York. You know, she was somebody who, who was failing in New York, just like me. <laughs> so she got on a plane and 
and tweeted something that was un in bad in very bad taste and her whole life basically imploded while she was in the sky yeah well i mean it came over in very bad taste i think at its at its heart um it, it wasn't necessarily in bad taste because she was trying to make a joke that was making fun of her own ignorance and privilege so right. she tweeted something that came across as very ignorant and privileged but that was that was the joke she was trying to make but because it was a because it wasn't very well worded um and nobody knew who she was she had like 100 twitter followers um when she was asleep on the plane she got you know massacred and lost her job became the worldwide number one trending topic on twitter the the the, the tweet was going to africa hope i don't get aids just kidding i'm white um and when right, she was yeah. asleep but she just took control of her life asleep on a plane and oblivious to to her arrest trial and conviction you wonder how many of her there are, how many people out there that have escaped that fate she ha- she was very unlucky in a way yeah she was the it was a weird confluence of yeah somebody sent the tweet to a Gorka journalist called Sam Bedell he started the he started the onslaught she was asleep on a plane and twitter thought that was hilarious we knew something that she didn't mm. that her life had been destroyed you know it was kind of a, it was kind of a form of torture you know hashtag yeah. trending worldwide hashtag has justine landed yet and then yeah. somebody linked to a flight tracker website so uh, oh, it's it's funny you know when when trump announced his candidacy, came down that elevator at Trump Tower and called Mexicans rapists. Um, and I felt something like shift in, in society, mm-hmm. like something happened in that moment that really shouldn't have happened. And, and, and it's like the world just changed a little. I, and I felt that when Trump made that speech, calling Mexicans rapists. Yeah. And I felt the same thing. The, the day of the Justin, you know, when Justin Sacker was asleep on the plane, I thought the world is shifting here. Like mm. this person is completely oblivious to her destruction. And yeah. we are finding that hilarious. I mean, you could equate it also to what happened to Caroline Flack as well. I mean, how there were greetings cards that were made kind of taking the piss out of what she was going through at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a sort of... I don't know. There's a, inside many people is a is a kind of murderous cruelty that fortunately doesn't come out that often. But once in a while, the confluence of circumstances allows it to come out. Yeah. Well, moving on to chapter six, that is the place that you'd never go back to. Where would that be? Um, other than Disney World, Florida. <laughs> Florida as a whole? Yeah, Florida as a whole. Oh, shit. Should I go smaller than a whole state? No, no, please. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's go into Florida. Well, Boca Raton. We, we went to Boca Raton by accident one time. Uh-huh. Um, and it's so Trumpy, so I won't go there. But I love Disney World. Love it. I unironically love Disney World. <laughs> Do you not like Miami? Um, yeah, I wouldn't really think about Miami when I said Florida. Uh my wife loves Miami. She goes to Art Basel every year and she 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 loves it. Um I've only been to Miami once or twice, so I'm I'm actually a registered voter in Miami. Oh, how come? 
but because I'm a US citizen and our residence when um we had one was in in Miami. Oh, okay. I'm going to your hometown. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you know, I, Fl- Florida has a bad rap, and understand, and yeah. rightly, rightly so. Yeah, I, I actually, I um, I was phone banking in Florida over over the election. Um, right. Yeah. Well, when I say phone banking, I was text banking. I, w- I was never going to phone anyone, but but I texted a whole bunch of people asking them to register to vote. Oh, it was close yeah. for the Democrats, but not quite. Yeah, but. I actually think it might be me that swung it for the Republicans. Cause <laughs> well, you weren't convincing. No, it wasn't convincing. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's other places I wouldn't go back to. Presumably you visited a lot of random places meeting people who feature in, <clears throat> in, in the narratives of your work. Oh, yeah. I've been to all sorts of places where, where people tend not to go that much unless they live there. Um, all sorts. I mean, tiny towns in Arkansas, in the Ozarks. You know, uh, really off the beaten track places, but I never think they're somewhere they're somewhere I'd never go back to because I always feel like if my if a story has taken me to some town I would never normally go to in the middle of nowhere in Arkansas, I feel incredibly privileged to mm-hmm. you know that, that my life is such that I could end up in that place. Mm-hmm. So, I, and so for me, the more backwardsy, the better. Mm. Um, I've, it, it really enlivens me to, to to be somewhere like that. So, so no, I'll never have negative feelings about a place like that. That's interesting. So, how do you decide what to work on? What like what you're going to work on next? How does that kind of come out? You're just you're, you're looking for stories to fall in love with. I, I once asked mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick's wife, Christiane Kubrick, like what was he looking for in the spaces between the movies. And she said that that magical moment of falling in love with the story. Um, yeah. You just it's like love, like you you know when you found it. Hmm. And do you know what your next one is? Um, well, I've just delivered a drama. I've just delivered a drama pilot this morning. Oh, um, how exciting! Yeah, which I which I really really love and really hope something happens with it. Um, and so now, and I've got and I've written bits and pieces that. I'm hoping we'll end up in my next book. But they're quite random bits mm-hmm. of prose at the moment. And I'm still, I think, looking. They're sort of connected, but sort of not connected. And, and so I'm still kind of looking for the connective tissue, I suppose. I'm really happy with the writing I've done. But I'm, I'm still sort of lacking the kind of connective tissue a bit. Oh, I can't wait. Can't wait to read whatever comes next. Well, thank you. Well, I, I'm so happy with the drama I've written. And, and I think it's the best. Because I, I write screenplays like on the side. and, and Yeah. Um, yeah, and and this is my favourite one that I've written by by a long way. Has it been picked up, or is it? Uh, well, it's been well. I'm being paid to write the pilot, um, and then uh, then it just then who knows? Okay, so uh, will you will you be able to tell us when it's out? When we, how we can look out for it? Oh God, if it, if it gets made, I will, I will be talking about nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we we will be on your Twitter and Instagram and wait. Yeah. <laughs> so we're on to your final chapter of your travel diaries, John, and that is what is at the top of your travel bucket list? Oh, New Zealand. Oh, yeah. It's funny. I've been to Australia a bunch of times, like four or five times um, to do like book tours and uh, festivals. Mm-hmm. And every time I go, I think I'm, I'm going to spend an extra, you know, I'm going to add a couple of days to this trip and go to New Zealand. 
Um, I've been obsessed with New Zealand my whole life. And I've, really? I've never, yeah, and I've never been. Um, so New Zealand is where I would, would go. Brilliant. Um, and then my second below New Zealand is Iceland. Another amazing destination. So are you drawn to that kind of dramatic um, na- nature landscape type trip? Yeah, and it's surprising for me because I always think of myself as an urban person. But, you know, I'm loving living in upstate New York, which is pretty, you know, it's got some pretty dramatic areas too. Mm. Um, and, yeah, the places the places I dream of going are all, are all wild landscape places mm. like New Zealand Iceland. Well, I hope you're able to make it there sometime soon to both of them. Me too. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time, John. It's been such a pleasure. Those were your travel diaries. Thank you so much. Holly, thank you. That was really fun. Oh, that was John Ronson. Oh, thank you so much for joining us, John, especially when you were feeling so unwell and for sharing so many great stories with us. You know, I'm about to get a puppy. Um, she's arriving next week, actually. I, I love animals. So I'm tempted to get on the old Queen Mary just so I can hang out on that dog deck. <laughs> so funny if you're enjoying the podcast then it would be wonderful if you could leave a rating or a review it really makes a big difference because it helps other people to discover the podcast to hear future episodes as soon as they're available just search for the travel diaries on your podcast app of choice and hit subscribe to find out who's joining me next week come and follow me on instagram i'm at holly rubenstein i'd love to hear from you And if you can't wait until then, there's always the first three seasons to catch up on from Michael Palin to Rick Stein and Serrano Fines to Simon Reeve. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be back next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.